Hello, and welcome to a special festive bonus from the good friends of Jackson Elias. It is part of the English Christmas tradition to gather around the fireplace on a cold winter night and share ghost stories. Happily, our good friend Mike Percival Maxwell has arranged for just such a reading for us. So, in a departure from our regular format, we present... The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde An amusing chronicle of the tribulations of the ghost of Canterville Chase when his ancestral halls became the home of the American minister to the court of St. James. Chapter 1 When Hiram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, who was a man of the most punctilious honour, had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We have not cared to live in the place ourselves, since my grand-aunt, the Dowager Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit, from which she never really recovered, by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. I feel bound to tell you, Mr. Otis, that the ghost has been seen by several living members of my family as well as by the rector of the parish, the Reverend Augustus Dampier, who was a fellow of King's College, Cambridge. After the unfortunate accident to the Duchess, one of our younger servants would stay with us, and Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night, in consequence of the mysterious noises that came from the corridor and the library. My lord, I will take the furniture and the ghost at evaluation. I have come from a modern country, where we have everything that money can buy, and with all our spry young fellows painting the old world red, and carrying off your best actors and prima donnas, I reckon that if there were such a thing as a ghost in Europe, we'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums, or on the road as a show. I fear that the ghost exists, though it may have resisted the overtures of your enterprising impresarios. It has been well known for three centuries, since 1584 in fact, and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family. Well, so does the family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. But there is no such thing, sir, as a ghost, and I guess the laws of nature are not going to be suspended for the British aristocracy. His lordship clearly did not quite understand Mr. Otis's last observation. You certainly are very natural in America, and if you don't mind a ghost in the house, it is all right. Only, you must remember, I warned you. A few weeks after this, the purchase was concluded, and at the close of the season, the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Miss Lucretia R. Tappan of West 53rd Street, had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome middle-aged woman with fine eyes and a superb profile. Many American ladies on leaving their native land adopt an appearance of chronic ill health under the impression that it is a form of European refinement. But Mrs. Otis had never fallen into this error. She had a magnificent constitution and a really wonderful amount of animal spirits. Indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that we have really everything in common with America nowadays, except, of course, language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism, which he never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man who had qualified himself for American diplomacy by leading the German at the Newport Casino for three successive seasons, and even in London was well known as an excellent dancer. 
Gardenias and the peerage were his only weaknesses, otherwise he was extremely sensible. Miss Virginia E. Otis was a little girl of fifteen, lithe and lovely as a fawn, and with a fine freedom in her large blue eyes. She was a wonderful Amazon, and had once raced old Lord Bilton on her pony twice round the park, winning by a length and a half just in front of the Achilles statue, to the huge delight of the young Duke of Cheshire, who proposed for her on the spot, and was sent back to Eton that very night by his guardians in floods of tears. After Virginia came the twins, who were usually called the Stars and Stripes, as they were always getting swished. They were delightful boys, and with the exception of the worthy minister, the only true Republicans of the family. As Canterville Chase is seven miles from Ascot, the nearest railway station, Mr Otis had telegraphed for a wagonette to meet them, and they started on their drive in high spirits. It was a lovely July evening, and the air was delicate with the scent of the pine woods. Now and then they heard a wood pigeon brooding over its own sweet voice, or saw deep in the rustling fern the burnished breast of the pheasant. Little squirrels peered at them from the beech trees as they went by, and the rabbits scudded away through the brushwood and over the mossy knolls with their white tails in the air. As they entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky became suddenly overclassed with clouds, a curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere, a great flight of rooks passed silently over their heads, and before they reached the house, some big drops of rain had fallen. Standing on the steps to receive them was an old woman, neatly dressed in black silk, with a white cap and apron. This was Mrs. Umney, the housekeeper, whom Mrs. Otis, at Lady Canterville's earnest request, had consented to keep in her former position. She made them each a low curtsy as they alighted, and said, in a quaint, old-fashioned manner, "'I bid you welcome to Canterville Chase.' Following her, they passed through the fine Tudor hall into the library, a long, low room panelled in black oak, at the end of which was a large stained-glass window. Here they found tea laid out for them, and after taking off their wraps, they sat down and began to look round, while Mrs Omney waited on them. Suddenly, Mrs Otis caught sight of a dull red stain on the floor just by the fireplace, and quite unconscious of what it really signified, said to Mrs Omney, I am afraid something has been spilt there. Yes, madam. Blood has been spilt on that spot. How horrid. I don't at all care for blood stains in a sitting room. It must be removed at once. The old woman smiled. It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that very spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances. His body has never been discovered, but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase. The bloodstain has been much admired by tourists and others, and cannot be removed. That is all nonsense. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and paragon detergent will clean it up in no time, cried Washington Otis, and before the terrified housekeeper could interfere, he had fallen upon his knees and was rapidly scouring the floor with a small stick of what looked like a black cosmetic. In a few moments, no trace of the bloodstain could be seen. "'I knew Pinkerton would do it!' he exclaimed triumphantly as he looked round at his admiring family. But no sooner has he said these words than a terrible flash of lightning lit up the sombre room, a fearful peal of thunder made them all start to their feet, and Mrs. Umney fainted. 
The American minister calmly lit a long cheroot. What a monstrous climate! I guess the old country is so overpopulated that they have not enough decent weather for everybody. I have always been of opinion that emigration is the only thing for England. My dear Hiram, what can we do with a woman who faints? Charge it to her like breakages. She won't faint after that. And in a few moments, Mrs. Umney certainly came too. There was no doubt, however, that she was extremely upset, and she sternly warned Mr. Otis to beware of some trouble coming to the house. I have seen things with my own eyes, sir, that would make any Christian's hair stand on end, and many and many a night I have not closed my eyes in sleep for the awful things that are done here. Mr. Otis, however, and his wife warmly assured the honest soul that they were not afraid of ghosts, and after invoking the blessings of Providence on her new master and mistress, and making arrangements for an increase of salary, the old housekeeper tottered off to her own room. Chapter 2 The storm raged fiercely all that night, but nothing of particular note occurred. The next morning, however, when they came down to breakfast, they found the terrible stain of blood once again on the floor. I don't think it can be the fault of the Paragon detergent, said Washington, for I have tried it with everything. It must be the ghost. He accordingly rubbed out the stain a second time, but the second morning it appeared again. The third morning also it was there, Though the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis himself and the key carried upstairs, the whole family were now quite interested. Mr. Otis began to suspect that he had been too dogmatic in his denial of the existence of ghosts. Mrs. Otis expressed her intention of joining the Psychical Society, and Washington prepared a long letter to Messrs. Myers and Podmore on the subject of the permanence of sanguineous stains when connected with crime. That night, all doubts about the objective existence of Phantasmata were removed forever. The day had been warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening the whole family went out to drive. They did not return home till nine o'clock when they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, so there were not even those primary conditions of receptive expectations which so often precede the presentation of psychical phenomena. The subjects discussed, as I have since learned from Mr Otis, were merely such as form the ordinary conversation of cultured Americans of the better class, such as the immense superiority of Miss Fanny Devonport over Sarah Bernhardt as an actress, the difficulty of obtaining green corn, buckwheat cakes and hominy, even in the best English houses, the importance of Boston in the development of the world's soul, the advantages of the baggage check system in railway travelling, and the sweetness of the New York accent as compared to the London drawl. No mention at all was made of the supernatural, nor was Sir Simon de Canterville alluded to in any way. At eleven o'clock the family retired, and by half-past all the lights were out. Some time after, Mr Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal, and seemed to be coming nearer every moment. He got up at once, struck a match and looked at the time. It was exactly one o'clock. He was quite calm and felt his pulse, which was not at all feverish. The strange noise still continued, and with it he heard distinctly the sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, took a small oblong file out of his dressing case, and opened the door. Right in front of him he saw, in the one moonlight, an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were as red burning coals. Long grey hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. 
His garments, which were of antique cut, were soiled and ragged, and from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty jives. My dear sir, I really must insist on your oiling those chains, and have brought you for that purpose a small bottle of the Tammany Rising Sun Lubricator. It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper from some of our most eminent native divines. I shall leave it here for you by the bedroom candles, and will be happy to supply you with more should you require it. And with these words, the United States Minister laid the bottle down on a marble table, and closing his door, retired to rest. For a moment, the Canterville ghost stood quite motionless, in natural indignation. Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, uttering hollow groans and emitting a ghastly green light. Just, however, as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, a door was flung open, two little white-robed figures appeared, and a large pillow whizzed past his head. There was evidently no time to be lost, so, hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape, he vanished through the wainscoting, and the house became quiet. On reaching a small chamber in the left wing, he leaned up against a moonbeam to recover his breath, and began to try and realise his position. Never, in a brilliant and uninterrupted career of three hundred years, had he been so grossly insulted. He thought of the Dowager Duchess, whom he had frightened into a fit as she stood before the glass in her lace and diamonds, of the four housemaids who had gone into hysterics when he merely grinned at them through the curtains on one of the spare bedrooms, of the rector of the parish, whose candle he had blown out as he was coming late one night from the library, and who had been under the care of Sir William Gull ever since, a perfect martyr to nervous disorders, and of old Madame Tramouliac, who, having wakened up one morning early and seen a skeleton seated in an armchair by the fire reading her diary, had been confined to her bed for six weeks with an attack of brain fever, and on her recovery had become reconciled to the church and broken off her connection with that notorious sceptic Monsieur de Voltaire. He remembered the terrible night when the wicked Lord Canterville was found choking in his dressing room with the knave of diamonds halfway down his throat and confessed just before he died that he had cheated Charles James Fox out of £50,000 at Crockford's by means of that very card and swore that the ghost had made him swallow it. All his great achievements came back to him again from the butler who had shot himself in the pantry because he had seen a green hand tapping at the window pane, to the beautiful Lady Stutfield, who was always obliged to wear a black velvet band round her throat to hide the mark of five fingers burnt on her white skin, and who drowned herself at last in the carp pond at the end of the King's Walk. With the enthusiastic egotism of the true artist, he went over his most celebrated performances and smiled bitterly to himself, as he recalled to mind his last appearance as Red Rubin or the Strangled Babe, his debut as Gaunt Gibeon, the bloodsucker of Bexley Moor, and the furore he had excited one lovely June evening by merely playing ninepins with his own bones upon the lawn tennis ground. And after all this, some wretched modern Americans would come and offer him the Rising Sun Lubricator and throw pillows at his head. It was quite unbearable. Besides, no ghost in history had ever been treated in this manner. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance, and remained till daylight in an attitude of deep thought.
And thus concludes the first part of the tale of the Canterville Ghost. Please join us next time for part two, in which Sir Simon's attempts to terrify the Otis family are further thwarted by the American family's relentless good humour. Mm-hmm.